You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, Yahweh said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of Yahweh your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of Yahweh when it passed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as Yahweh told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And there they are to this day. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that Yahweh commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of Yahweh and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before Yahweh for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, Yahweh exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up. Out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up. At Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For Yahweh your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, that you may fear Yahweh your God forever.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 682 of this podcast. That was a reading of Joshua chapter 4. That was, if you were picturing it in your mind, quite the picture. Quite the picture. And lest we would miss it, lest we would maybe think, well, okay, is this a echo of things from earlier? No, you know what? You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder. It's explicitly said, this is just like the Red Sea. Just like. Just like God allowed the people of Israel to pass through the Red Sea. Here he is, letting them pass over the Jordan. Just fantastic stuff. And, and, what might we miss? What might we easily miss here? If we think that someone either has a high view of God or can envision potentially having a high view of man or a man or men, we could very easily miss where God himself says, I will exalt you in the eyes of Israel. I will exalt you. Today, I will begin to exalt you, he says in Joshua chapter 3. But here he says, see, (laughs) I'm doing it. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's what effectively is being communicated by God here. He's doing it. Why is it important for him to do this thing? Because Israel needs to obey Joshua. Now, what's interesting here on a few levels is it's not either or. You either obey God or you obey human authority. Ideally, when you obey human authority, you are also obeying God. It's that we so often have human authorities that are corrupt, who tell us to do what God has told us to not do or to not do what God has told us to do, or they insinuate certain reprisals are headed our way. If we obey God, there will be little ways of getting back at us for it. If we speak truly what God has said, we'll find our comeuppance in pettiness and passive aggressiveness, a withdrawal of support, a withdrawal of fellowship, a withdrawal of good graces and favor. So often we find that that is our experience. But ideally, when God has you, let's say, in a home environment, submitting to the authority in the home, in the family, you are not put at any kind of a conflict with submitting yourself to God. Ideally, when you are submitting yourself to someone in civil government— You are not at any kind of a dilemma point with your obedience to God. Ideally, we don't have to say we must obey God rather than men because we're obeying God and we're obeying the men who are in authority over us. Unfortunately, there's a lot of variations on a dysfunctional relationship between authority and those under authority. For instance... There are people who don't recognize anyone as having authority over them. Not God, not the civil authorities, not church authorities, not family authority. 
Also, there are those who are in positions of authority in the civil space who don't respect there being any authority in the home or in the church. There are those in positions of authority in the church who don't respect there being a proper role for the civil government or a proper role for the government of a family and a household. There are people who are in authority in households who don't regard there as being any legitimate authority other than theirs. All of the above. All of the above are erroneous. And God is not setting his people up for failure. He is making it very clear that Joshua is his man. Joshua is his spokesperson. Joshua is the one who's going to command and the people will listen. Why? Because just like God fights for Israel, God is commanding Joshua. Joshua is on God's side because God is always right. And therefore, when God tells Joshua to tell the people to do this or that, unless there's a clear contradiction of what God has told them to do elsewhere, they should do it. But notice the kinds of commands, right? The kinds of commands that Joshua is giving. They all fit within what has already been established as Joshua's purview by God. They're supposed to come into Canaan and possess the land. And so how does that happen unless part of possessing the land is you take instructions from your commanding officer? Joshua is the supreme commander of the Israelite forces. God establishes the purpose for Joshua's authority here. God establishes the purpose of the people of Israel going in to possess Canaan and to drive out these other nations. When Joshua gives commands, they are short simple, clear, direct, and they are pertinent to the larger mission, as has been communicated by God. The promise was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is not secret. This is not new. Everyone knows what they're supposed to be about, and the orders that Joshua gives are pertinent to the larger promise and the larger purpose of God. Joshua is not just making stuff up. What we don't see in the text anyways, and an argument from silence is the weakest form of argument just about, but what we don't see in the text is Joshua just seeing if he can play around with the power. You know, my kids, last night they were hanging out with Joel Pringle, the lovely Joel Pringle, who blessed our household once again, hanging out with our kids, which is a joy to her and it's a joy to our kids. And they were watching the movie Megamind when Lauren and I got back from our date at Georgia Boys, Georgia Boys Barbecue in Greeley, Colorado. But they were watching this movie. And one of the things as I sat down and got sucked into watching the movie with my kids, and then Lauren and Joelle went off in the other room and they were chatting and making small talk. And it was great, but I was watching the movie. One of the things that... I'm thinking of right now in relation to what Joshua is not doing here is you have Titan in Megamind getting these superpowers and he is a bull in a china shop. He obviously does not have high character with regards to his use of these powers. And that's part of the foreshadowing that he's going to be actually a villain. He's not going to be a hero. He's going to be a villain. He doesn't have good character. And then ironically, Megamind is going to be the hero who stops 
Titan from destroying the city. But Titan, he's trying out these new powers and he's wrecking things left and right. And he doesn't care about anything except for playing with these new powers. Some people who get authority, they let it go to their heads. And the next thing you know, they're wielding their power in ways that were not at all intended, that are not at all heroic. They are abusive and totalitarian and tyrannical. And that's not the reason why God gave power to Joshua. It's not the reason why he delegates authority to others for us to then interpret a blank check whereby we just do whatever we want with the power and authority that we have. And if anybody challenges, disagrees with, contradicts, or cross-examines us, we use all of the power and authority to destroy them, to nullify them, to neutralize them, to silence them. No, 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 no. That's a great way to have the authority that God has allowed you to have taken away from you and for that also to accomplish the purposes of God because God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows, even if he's a man with power and authority. Maybe especially, actually, we should say, if he's a man with authority. But Joshua is not giving frivolous orders, frivolous commands. In fact, Joshua is very reverentially careful to say, at certain points, God says this, listen to God. And it's not a false humility. God actually did say to do those things, and Joshua's not making it up. And if Joshua was making it up, well, then there would be serious consequences that he could reasonably expect. But what does Joshua command? He commands pertinent instructions, orders, directives to Israel to cross over the Jordan. Why is that relevant? Because you have to cross over the Jordan to begin to take possession of this land that God has commanded you to and promised that you will do, and which he has said he will bless you in being able to do it. It's entirely pertinent, and they knew it, and we know it. And there's no getting around it. But it's interesting. You know, I want to draw another thing out for you in this passage. Joshua chapter 4, you have memorial stones. Why are the memorial stones significant? Well, part of why they're significant is because each tribe has a delegate man who will represent each of those tribes. You could say, well, Joshua is the man. Why doesn't he just do all of it? No, that's not the idea. That's not necessary. He might give the instructions, but each of these men represents their tribe. And those tribes being distinct from one another is still important to God. And these stones representing the tribes is important to God. And these stones representing each tribe, as well as the larger nation, the whole nation, having crossed over after God parted the river Jordan. That's important for future generations to remember. Why is it important for future generations? So that they understand the character of God, the purposes of God, the promises of God, and they take seriously the commands of God. Put simply, these stones are significant insofar as they point to who is God. Who is God that you should love him, fear him, 
trust him, obey him, serve him. But it's not Joshua. And it's not the Levitical priests either carrying all these stones. You know, that could be another thing here is we may assume because God has selected the Levites to be his inheritance out of all the tribes, why not just have the Levites? But there's a sense in which the Levites are equals with the other tribes in that they're each going to have a man who carries the stone out of the midst of the Jordan, verse 8. It's interesting. It's interesting that this is an equalizing thing. In this sense, they are all the same. That they all come from these tribes that make up the nation. And originally, their forefathers were 12 sons of one man. And you've got to think to yourself, if the Levites have been put up on a pedestal for some time now, and there's all of this business about the Levites being God's inheritance, his portion, they're not going to have an inheritance in the land. They're going to get special treatment in some ways. They're not going to get certain things that everybody else is going to get, but they are going to get something that not everybody else is going to get. Nobody else is going to get. In this respect, all of a sudden, everybody has to say, wait a second, you're carrying your stone of remembrance just like I am? Your tribe has a stone of remembrance just like my stone? Hmm. Maybe that's good for the other tribes to see, and maybe that's good for the tribe of Levi to see. Just a thought. Switching gears, though. Let's talk about some current events items. Following up on the previous episode where I shared with you some audio from an interview the rapper Neo had with a certain Gloria Velez about parents allowing their children to transition from boys to girls, girls to boys, all the rest. Here's an update on that. That was a subscriber-only podcast episode, so you might not actually get to listen to it unless you subscribe, 99 cents a month. You may not get to listen to it until September or later, since right now it's August, August 7th. But in that video, in that interview, Neo said, this is not okay. Since when did parents stop being parents? You're going to let your young child make a life-altering decision like this to change their gender, to have their organs removed or mutilated, to take puberty blockers, to change their pronouns? No, 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 no. That's not okay. When did that become okay? That's not okay. An update from Daily Wire News. Neo slammed online after caving to left-wing pressure over transgender parenting comments. Now, here is the tweet from Neo's account. Notice I said his account. That will be relevant here in just a little bit. Neo tweeted out, supposedly, I'd like to express my deepest apologies. And I quote, after much reflection, I'd like to express my deepest apologies to anyone that I may have hurt with my comments on parenting and gender identity. I've always been an advocate for love and inclusivity in the LGBTQI plus community, so I understand how my comments could have been misinterpreted as insensitive and offensive 
Gender identity is nuanced, and I can honestly admit that I plan to better educate myself on the topic so I can approach future conversations with more empathy. At the end of the day, I lead with love and support everyone's freedom of expression and pursuit of happiness, end quote. And there were a whole bunch of reactions to this. There was a whole lot of response from Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh and Seth Dillon over at the Babylon Bee, Will Kane from Fox News, Jesse Kelly, UFC fighter Jake Shields, whoever he is. I don't know. I don't, I'm not familiar with him. Anyway, lots of people responded basically saying, you coward, how could you, how could you capitulate? How could you back down? What you said was so tame by comparison to what we're up against. And oh, you, why, right? Why, why did you do this? Well, just wait, just hold on a second. As is usually the case, there is more to the story than what was initially posted out. And Be careful, right? Be careful when you see accounts, social media accounts posting for celebrities that might be their publicist, that might be somebody who manages their reputation on behalf of the people who have a vested interest in their brand, whoever that might be, right? Whoever that might be, in this case, the publicist, it would seem. But why don't I just play for you, cut one, this is actually Neo speaking in a follow-up video that he posted on this question. I'll play it for you, cut one, and then I have some thoughts. What's going on, loved ones? This is Neo. All right, listen, I normally don't give too much of a damn about what y'all think about what I do, what y'all have to say about what I say, whatever. I normally don't care because, like I said, opinions ain't special. Everybody got one. However, this is something I feel very strongly on, and I need y'all to hear this from the horse's mouth not the publicist's computer. So check this out. First and foremost, I do not apologize for having an opinion on this matter. I am a 43-year-old heterosexual man raising five boys and two girls, okay? That's my reality. Now, if my opinion offended somebody, yeah, sure, I apologize for you being offended because that wasn't my intention. My intention is never to offend anybody. However, I'm entitled to feel how I feel. I'm absolutely entitled to feel how I feel the same way you are entitled to feel how you feel. I ain't asked nobody to follow me. I ain't asked nobody to agree with me. I was asked a question and I answered the damn question. Okay. I have no beef with the LBGTQIA plus community whatsoever. I ain't got no beef with y'all. Do whatever the hell it is you want to do. Do what you want to do with your kids. However, Somebody asked my opinion on this matter, and this is how I feel. I will never be okay with allowing a child to make a decision that detrimental to their life. I will never be okay with that. I don't. I, I definitely plan to educate myself a little bit more on this matter. However, I doubt that there's any book anywhere or any opinion that somebody's going to tell me that's going to make me okay with letting a child make a decision like that. That's just period, point blank, and that's how I feel. If I get canceled for this, then you know what? Maybe this is a world where they don't need a Neo no more, all right? And I got no problem with that. I'm a hustler. All right? I'll figure it out. I got kids to raise, and I'm going to do that regardless. So with that being said, y'all have a good day. I love everybody. Live how you want to live. Love how you want to love. But your opinion is yours. Speak your opinion as much as you damn well feel like it. Because as I said, they're not, impo- they're not special. Everybody got one, and you're entitled to it. I'm entitled to mine. All right? Y'all feel how y'all want to feel. Have a great day. It's Neo. Peace and love. Okay. <laughs> Uh, All right. All right. All right. All right. (laughs) 
it would appear either A, he did the interview and he was speaking candidly. And as you may have heard, if you're a subscriber for 99 cents a month, as you may have heard in the previous episode, he said where he stands on this with Gloria Velez. And she was like, amen, amen, amen. Which is funny because they're borrowing language from the church. And this is, whether we all want to admit it or not, this is Judeo-Christian morality. This is coming from the fact that we are born into Western civilization and Christian ethics, Christian morality are still with us. A Christian conception of what is right and wrong and true and false are still with us. But he said what he said in the video. And then next thing you know, here's an apology from his official Twitter account. And then, wait a second, here's another video from just him sitting in his vehicle, posted not even by him on his Twitter account. It's posted by Amala Ekpunobi. So maybe this is a friend of his who's like, yeah, I'll share that to Twitter. Because maybe just maybe his publicist is like, you know... You're kind of feeling like Kanye here. Maybe we need to do the Kanye thing to you if you're not on the leash anymore, if you're not willing to say whatever we want you to say because we're engineering the public opinion and you're not cooperative anymore. Maybe he gives this video to a friend who's going to tweet it out and now it's picked up by the Daily Wire before it can be taken down because, oh, by the way, it's Twitter. And what are the people who want this taken down going to actually say to Twitter to get this to be removed before anybody can see it? Right? What are they going to say that Elon Musk, for instance, is going to be like, yeah, you're right. We'll definitely take that down. There's nothing crazy about the position he's taking. Actually, I think it's too tame. But given that he's a rapper, he's a celebrity, you don't want anybody, anybody breaking rank. If you are part of this larger consensus factory, the manufacturing of consensus through propaganda, through the use of celebrities to not just advertise products and services and brands, but to advertise agendas, to advertise the new social imaginary and what it has turned its attention to next as a way of continuing to purge the old social imaginary from the public consciousness, even from our memory. Here's his video saying, you know what? I'm a 43-year-old man. I'm raising sons and daughters, and I'm not okay with this. You know, what's great about this is father of seven, he's saying, I'm speaking as a father right now. That takes precedent. Speaking as a father and as a man. I see that. I hear that. I respect that. I relate to that. You know what I tell recruiters when they reach out to me and they say, oh, you've got this impressive automation resume. Oh, you've got this background, you've got these skills, and we'd like to talk with you about a role that would either uproot your family and move you or would involve you traveling. And I've had several recruiters, by the way, over the years say, oh, we'd like to talk with you about traveling back and forth between this country and another country or traveling all around this country. I've had a lot of recruiters, especially in the last year, say, we'd like to talk with you about a position that might require you traveling to other states on a weekly basis. And you know what I tell them? I say, you know what? This job is a means to an end. I have a large family. I have seven sons with an eighth on the way. I have a daughter. I have a wife. I work to provide for my family. If I'm not around 
if I'm traveling on a weekly basis, out of state, out of the area, they can't call on me to help them do something for them. That's not ideal, right? So unless you're offering some huge paycheck that I am able to collect for a year or two, and that totally changes our outlook on life, it allows us to buy a home and where we own, we don't rent anymore and we build equity and I'm providing for my family better in the long run. Unless you're doing that, the answer is probably going to be no. I'm a father. I'm a husband. That takes precedent over my being a professional. In fact, my vocation is first and foremost a way of me glorifying God, but also my vocation is a way for me to honor God when I tell somebody, hey, listen, (laughs) my being a husband takes precedent over what you're describing in this role. My being a father takes precedent over what you're describing in the job description here. I hear Neo here. I hear him basically speaking from the same set of priorities and saying, I'm not going to apologize for having an opinion on this. Now, I might clarify a few points of his opinion here, but the idea that his publicist having access to his Twitter account would apologize on his behalf and represent it as if it's an apology from this rapper. Ooh, boy, howdy, does that rub me the wrong way. I mean, I'm just imagining. What if I worked for a corporation that said, our reputation is so important to us, we are going to require that you give us the credentials to your social media accounts. And if you ever say anything or do anything, we want to be able to have our people go in and do damage control. But then wait a second, some of our damage control might be actually invalidating and apologizing for on your behalf, representing you, pretending to be you for things that you don't regret at all. And you shouldn't actually regret. Hoo-hoo. Man, man, does that, does that rub me the wrong way or what? It really does. But this is to say, we should think differently about all of these celebrities. How many of them, they say something off the cuff, and then next thing you know, they're offering a public apology. How many of those people are pressured, they're bullied and bribed and they're manipulated into offering a correction for what they earlier had said, what they had earlier stated? How many of those folks we think are just idiot Hollywood spineless types, but what it really is, is they didn't have a egress exit to be able to express that, no, in fact, I stand by what I said. You know, what he says here about if I get canceled, then so be it. Maybe the rap world just doesn't need Neo anymore. Maybe that's just what it is. If I get canceled for this, so be it. Because what is he thinking about? If you take his video comments here and you take the interview with Gloria Velez, if you take them together, he's thinking, wait a second, you mean you might take my children away from me and accuse me of child abuse if I say I'm not okay with you promoting gender theory to my children? Where does that stop? Does his publicist also say, you know what, one of your kids is going to have to be trans, pick one. One of your kids is going to have to start using preferred pronouns of the opposite gender, and you're going to have to be okay with it. You're going to come out publicly and say, I love my child. You're going to surrender one of your children to us, and you're not going to say a word about it ever, right? Where is the line? Where is the boundary? If a husband and a father can't at a certain point say, oh, no, 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 no. All right, I'm playing the trump card of protecting my wife and my children, being the head of my household. I have authority in this matter. I say no. 
that's where we're at. And I think that's what we're seeing here in this case. I think there's a lot more to it than what would be wise to react to in a knee-jerk fashion when you see the text of an apology with these other celebrities as well. I think what would be great moving forward is if you're able to get access to some of these other celebrities who have issued written apologies after video interviews or audio interviews in which they said something that their publicists or record companies, production studios would have regretted. You know, if if they issued a written apology, maybe have a follow-up. See if you can get access and ask them, was that really you? Did you really apologize? Was that really you apologizing for what you said? What's the backstory on this? There's more to this even than what we're seeing at this point. I guarantee you that. In other news, though, Jesse James over at Not The Bee posted a piece just yesterday. George Soros thinks he is some kind of god, and that made him uncomfortable until he, quote, started living it out, end quote. No, really, he said this. Here's a quote to start off the piece, the published post at Not The Bee. It is a sort of disease when you consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything, but I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out, end quote. Those are the words of George Soros from a 2004 LA Times interview that has just resurfaced. The title of the interview, George Soros, the God who carries around some dangerous demons. This was in the LA Times, y'all. As Zero Hedge notes, Joe Rogan spoke with former CIA officer Mike Baker a few months ago, and the topic of discussion was George Soros. Quote, I had a conversation with the governor of Texas about him with Greg Abbott, where he was explaining to me about what George Soros does, end quote, Rogan said. Quote, and it's effing terrifying that he donates money to a very progressive, very leftist, whether it's a DA or whatever politician, and then funds someone who's even further left than them to go against them, end quote, Rogan added, quote, and just keeps moving it along. So he's playing like a global game and that he enjoys doing it, end quote. Quote, he understood early on where you wanted to seize power, end quote, Baker said. They're both correct, of course. Now here's the relevant and extremely evil and disturbing portion of the LA Times interview with Soros. Quote, it seems that Soros believes he was anointed by God. Quote, I fancied myself as some kind of God, end quote, he once wrote. Quote, if truth be known, I carried some rather potent messianic fantasies with me from childhood, which I felt I had to control, otherwise they might get me in trouble, end quote. When asked by Britain's independent newspaper to elaborate on that passage, Soros said, quote, it is a sort of disease when you consider yourself some kind of God, the creator of everything, but I feel comfortable about it now since I began to live it out, end quote. Since I began to live it out, those unfamiliar with Soros would probably dismiss the statement out of hand, but for those who have followed his career and sociopolitical endeavors, it cannot be taken quite so lightly. Soros has proved that with the vast resources of money at his command, he has the ability to make the once unthinkable acceptable. His work as a self-professed amoral financial speculator has left millions in poverty, when their national currencies were devaluated, and he pumped so much cash into shaping former Soviet republics to his liking that he has bragged that the former Soviet empire is now the 
quote, Soros empire, end quote. Now he's turned his eye on the internal affairs of the United States. Today's U.S., he writes in his latest book, The Bubble of American Supremacy, is a, quote, threat to the world, end quote, run by a Republican party that is the devil child of an unholy alliance between, quote, market fundamentalists, end quote, and, quote, religious fundamentalists, end quote. We have become a supremacist nation. Quote, next to my fantasies about being God, I also have very strong fantasies of being mad, end quote, Soros once confided on British television. Quote, in fact, my grandfather was actually paranoid. I have a lot of madness in my family. So far, I have escaped it, end quote. Well, maybe not, right? Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe you haven't, actually. Why I bring this up is because there are actually real people who have vast sums of money. They have huge fortunes who play God. There are people in the world who play God. They don't just believe that there is a God and that people should be afraid of the God. They take it upon themselves to play God. And once again, I want to point out the contrast with what Joshua does in Joshua chapter 4. Joshua is to be exalted in the eyes of his fellow Israelites. Why? Because he is carrying out what it is that God has commanded him to do. He is also helping Israel, leading Israel in fulfilling what God has commanded Israel to do. Joshua is exalted, but he points back to what God commanded to say, this is what God has commanded. Joshua is not playing God. A high view of man in this case, is not at all at odds with a high view of God, because if God has exalted the man, then you also should have a high view of that man. If the man is setting himself up as God, that man should expect he is in danger of the fires of hell in short order. In fact, as a matter of fact, (laughs) as a matter of fact, I would draw your attention here to Acts chapter 12, verses twenty through 23. And I quote, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people, verse 22, were shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So we have here an example of a man very similar to George Soros, wealthy, powerful, influential, a mover and a shaker in the world, accepting this regard as a God, and then even just for a brief time, living it out. How much worse will it be for George Soros living it out over the course of years and decades on the world stage? Pity him. I mean that. Pity him. But don't be afraid of him. And don't trust for an instant the things he has an influence over. The reason I bring this to your attention is there are wealthy, powerful men who partner with George Soros, and they also style themselves gods after a fashion. They don't respect you and I as men equal to them. Why? 
because with all of their wealth and all of their power, they have forgotten that they are mortal men. They are just men. And they have forgotten also that we, like they, have been created in the image of Almighty God and to that Almighty Holy God we will one day have to give an account. And in the meantime, God allows them to do what they will do, and this is a test to us. I am persuaded. I am convinced. This is a test to us. We must be sure of what is true and why it is true. We must know who is God and who is not a God, that we would fear them, that we would serve them, that we would worship them, that we would obey them. This is not no big deal. This is actually what is at the core of every sin and error. Who will you obey? Who will you serve? Who is the ultimate authority? That's not a side issue. That's not one among many issues. That is actually, at the end of the day, the issue. That is the question. In every sin, in every error, that is the question. Who do you trust? Who do you believe? Who do you serve? Who do you fear? Who do you obey? Who do you love more than life itself? If the answer is you yourself, watch out. If the answer is some other mortal man and you idolize them, watch out. On the other hand, lest we suppose that all who have vast fortunes are the same, it would seem there's at least one who is very wealthy, who is not as far gone anyways as George Soros, and we should hope and we should pray for Elon Musk's soul as well. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. But we have Elon Musk having pledged publicly now to go to war against any company which has punished an employee of that company for what they said on Twitter. His exact quote, the exact quote from him, is as follows, if you were unfairly treated by your employer due to posting or liking something on this platform, we will fund your legal bill. No limit. Please let us know. And we won't just sue. It will be extremely loud. And we will go after the boards of directors of the companies too. End quote. Gina Carano, who you may remember was one of the major characters in the hit Disney show on Disney Plus, The Mandalorian, Gina Carano tweeted in reply, I think I qualify. (laughs) And she does. And the big question from Christian Toto over at the Daily Wire is, will Elon Musk fight Disney on Gina Carano's behalf? She was dismissed very publicly because of her activity on Twitter, which should have been protected speech according to the First Amendment. But this is part of how the leftists have decided to wage war against conservatives in the U.S. is they go after the investors. They go after the very wealthy people who fund these companies and they pick them off until those corporations punish conservatives who work for them or work with them on the behalf of, at the behest of, the radical left. If Elon Musk will go after Disney for this and fund a legal battle. Great. Wonderful. Excellent. I think that would be appropriate. 
In case you forget, here was the original tweet from Gina Carano that had her fired from The Mandalorian. And I quote, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them for simply being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? End quote. And actually, as a matter of fact, it's not so different when so much of what makes conservatives who are really truly conservatives consistently conservatives in the first place is not just Greco-Roman, not even actually all that much in the Greco-Roman tradition, but it's the Judeo-Christian morality. It's their Judeo-Christian conception of what is true and false, right and wrong, that makes conservatives a special target of the radical left. If People who come from the Judeo-Christian background start saying amen and amen and hallelujah and yes, I quite agree that this is wrong. It's immoral to do what is being done to children on behalf of gender theorists and the radical left. They are hearkening back to something they probably don't even consciously recognize at a certain point as Christianity. And yet, We are inheritors of a blessing from the Christians who so influenced the course of Western civilization. We're inheritors, and so also the radical left has inherited something of a very different spirit. And that very different spirit, if you would listen to Richard Wormbrand, is not of God, but it is demonic and satanic. We should hope that as conservatives, and it's always conservatives— as conservatives have been persecuted in the public square as they try to engage in the public discourse and discuss these things and make decisions together and persuade others, we should hope that there would be legal protections based on the First Amendment or else what is exactly the First Amendment there for when the radical left can enlist woke investors and woke corporations to destroy someone's ability to exercise their First Amendment rights. And if the government does nothing about it, does not protect them, does not safeguard them, what we have on the one hand is the spoil system. And on the other hand, we have election interference. We have an infringement on First Amendment rights. And so it's a very appropriate thing. It's a very intuitive continuation of what Elon Musk said he was buying Twitter to do in the first place to say, We will help you. We will help you to protect your right to speak without reprisals, particularly if the things you are saying are not illegal. They're not insane. They're not criminal. They're not immoral. But somebody just didn't like them because they were against the progressive consensus, the consensus factory. This is good. This is a good move. This is a right and appropriate exercise of material wealth. And it's about as far opposite what George Soros has been doing as I can think of. That's before you even get into Elon Musk saying whether he was joking or not. I don't think he was joking. The reason he bought Twitter in the first place was because they suspended the Babylon Bee for making jokes about a biological man, a man dressed up as a woman being their man of the year. 
these other companies, these other outlets kept on putting men dressed up as women on their magazine covers as woman of the year. Babylon B decided to satirize the whole lot of them and say, no, no, Rachel Levine is our man of the year. And Twitter, under the former leadership, suspended them, not because they had broken any laws, not because they had violated any official policy, but because it hit too close to home. It was too effective at persuading people that, you know what, this is a paper tiger. These are liars you're dealing with. Don't believe them. Don't submit to them. Don't let them run your life. Don't let them control what you can say and what you can do. No, no, no. No. When that was the original reason, the stated reason why Elon Musk bought Twitter in the first place, now he's doing this. You know what? If any of you hate Elon Musk out there, you probably hate me too. Just to be clear, you probably hate me too. And I think that's very unfortunate. It doesn't change where I'm ultimately going, but I would strongly encourage you do some soul searching now while you have the chance. We're on the right side. If we agree with God and if we don't agree with God, no amount of wealth, no amount of consensus manufacturing is going to change where we go to. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. For our next story, Joe Rogan eviscerates Gavin Newsom. Joe Biden considers interview with Donald Trump. Paul Saka reports for TheBlaze.com. Why don't I go ahead and play for you cut two? But before I do, let me give you a warning. The language here is not PG. If you need a moment, go ahead and hit pause. If your children are present and you don't want them to hear this kind of language, I'll give you a chance. But then I am going to play this and you can hear what... Joe Rogan thinks of all of this, and then I'll have some thoughts for you. Here it is. Cut to take a listen. I just can't imagine the United States wants President Kamala Harris. I don't think anybody wants that. Nobody wants that. I mean, they may, maybe some people would prefer that over President Trump, but nobody wants that. And nobody wants President Newsom either. Nobody believes in that guy. It's, the guy's a fucking con man. I mean, everything he did in California, from trying to mandate vaccines for kids, what was totally unnecessary, to being caught out in public without a mask and lying about the fact that he was outdoors. Yeah. All of it. It's just nobody believes in that guy. He's just a politician, just a stone cold, narrative driven politician. You know, and it's nobody thinks he's a real human. Whether you like Trump or not, whether you think it's cor- he's corrupt or not, that's a human being. You you know yeah. you know is you know what that guy is. Same thing with RFK Jr. Whether you believe that he's correct about vaccines or whether you believe his policies would be effective, and you you know that's a human being. With Newsom, you've got like this construct, this this cardboard cutout of a person. It's just I don't think people want that. But they might want it more than they want President Trump. Okay. So, cut, cut, cut. You know what? Joe Rogan is right. I agree with Joe Rogan. However you feel about Donald Trump, that's a person. Good, bad, and ugly all rolled into one 
candid package, even if you wish he was less candid, even if you wish he would be less off the cuff. I really do think what he's communicating is what is actually in his heart. Gavin Newsom, that man could be the devil. Like he is a bad man. Hear me when I say he is a bad, bad man. But the reason I bring this up is not actually to try and persuade you to change your opinion of Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris or Joe Biden or Gavin Newsom. I bring this to your attention because this, all of it, all of it is applicable when we're talking about we ourselves and the kind of testimony that we have with other people who are not Christians for one thing, and they don't have a particular invested motivation to filter their opinion of us. If we're a cardboard cutout of a whole lot of talking points and a whole lot of opposition research, and we're just a lot of very carefully crafted statements, too slickly, too cleverly by half delivered, people will say the same things about us that they say about Gavin Newsom. And you know what? People might hate you, but if you're a real person, people will, if they're honest, at least say, you know what? At least you're a person. I don't agree with you, but at least you're a human being. I recognize that you're being honest. And you know what? If we wanted to take this the next step, the next best thing is be an honest person who agrees with God. See, that's the Achilles heel for Donald Trump, as I see it, is the man has publicly gone on record as saying, I have no need to regret anything I've ever done or said. That's not appropriate. That's not God-fearing. If you were honest before God, and someday you will have to be, you would say, some of the things that I've said over the years have not been true. Some of the things that I've done have not been good. And I was wrong. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And please forgive me. And I'm sorry that I harmed real people, whether by untruths that I spoke or misdeeds that I acted on. If you go to God and ask for mercy and you ask for grace and you confess, which is to say you agree with God, that's what confession is. It's to agree with God. When you sin, you're just agreeing with God. When you confess, you're agreeing with God. You know what? Yep. That was wrong. That was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. God, please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please don't count this sin against me. Like David, and this is why David was a man after God's own heart. It's not because everything David said or did ever was correct. No, it's that he had the wisdom to admit, I have sinned against you, O God. I have sinned against you, and it grieves me, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the sin against you. Please forgive me. Please have mercy on me, a sinner. You know, when there's this showdown, one of the showdowns between Jesus and the teachers of the law, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees in the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, there's one of these showdowns in which Jesus tells a story about two men praying. One of them, a tax collector, one of them, a Pharisee, and the Pharisee, lofty opinion of himself, looking to God, thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, man, I'm just so thankful that I'm not like this dirty, rotten, no good scoundrel of a tax collector over here. Whereas the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. He was so filled with regret at his own sin. He was so grieved by his own sins, his own inadequacy, his own failure to meet God's holy and righteous standard. Beating his breast, 
have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh God, have mercy on me. Jesus asks the question, who went away justified? And you know who? The man who couldn't look up to heaven, who beat his breast. But that's not the end, right? That's not the end of the story. If you are Zacchaeus, for instance, Jesus says, go and make whole those who have been harmed. And you know what? (laughs) You know what? I think that is perhaps possibly, and I hope, and I pray, that's part of what Elon Musk is doing when he says, we're going to help you to get legal recourse, to be made whole again. If you were damaged, if you were harmed by Twitter and the way that Twitter advertised to corporations that it was open season on you and your livelihood and your business, if you dared to engage in the public square as if it actually was a public square instead of a consensus factory, instead of a slaughterhouse for conservatives and conservative opinion, conservative thought, if you were harmed by the false advertising of this company, reach out. We will pay your legal bills. We will help you to get restitution, and we will not rest. We will not sit idle until you have been made whole. When he says that, you know what I think to myself? I think that is a real person. That might just be a Zacchaeus. I hope it is. I hope that's a Zacchaeus moment for Elon Musk. Why? Because he bought the company and he inherited the company's problems. You know, it's a funny thing. It's an interesting thing. The history of the United States is that there was a Mexican-American war prior to the Civil War, and it could be argued that there wouldn't have been a civil war, at least not when it happened and not in the way that it happened, if there had not been a Mexican-American war. But there was a Mexican-American war in which the United States could have had all of Mexico. You think we have some things to figure out right now with a poor southern border with Mexico, people coming up from Central and South America. Just imagine what it would have been like, if you can, if we had just kept the whole enchilada. And we could have. And you know what? A principal reason for not keeping all of Mexico was if you hold that territory, you inherit the problems. You become responsible for fixing those problems. And our ancestors here in the United States, politically, socially, said, we don't want those problems. We don't want those problems because we don't want to be responsible for coming up with the solutions for them. So we're going to pick and choose which of what territories had formerly comprised New Spain or Mexico, we are going to keep. And the rest, no thanks. (laughs) No, thank you. Elon Musk, if he bought Twitter and now is saying, you know what? I bought the company. I've inherited these problems. Here, journalists, Matt Taibbi. Here, Michael Schellenberger. Here, please report on this because we're going to make it right. If Elon Musk is now going the next step and he's saying, you know what? There's another category of people who've been wronged by this company, which I bought, which I am now trying to correct, and I'm now trying to make right again. There's another category of people who have been harmed, and that is people who participated in the public discourse who lost their jobs. They lost their contracts. They lost their businesses because the left targeted them and the people on the inside at Twitter helped the radical left to target them and to destroy them economically, socially, politically. Good on Elon Musk. But going back to Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan correctly identifies 
The major problem with Gavin Newsom, he's a con man. He says, and I quote, he's a cardboard cutout, end quote. Shame on us if any one of us would be a cardboard cutout because we found a formula. And that's our tradition is to follow the formula, read from the talking points, but it's not genuine. It's not what we really believe. It's not who we really are. And we're more occupied with following the formula than we are crying out to God, even if it means beating our chest, not even looking up to heaven. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. For our last story for this episode, consider a post from the day before yesterday by Daniel Plainview over at Not The Bee. Democrats are seeing a massive drop-off in funding as reality kicks in and enthusiasm wanes over Grandpa Joe. To quote Daniel Plainview from the top, Around about this time in 2020, Democrats were relentlessly desperate to beat Trump and were absolutely shelling out the money to Democrat machines like Lil Wayne making it rain with $20 bills, it looks like. That's what the GIF appears to me to be showing, at least. Now, after several years of President Mumble Peg, they seem a little more content to hang on to their dollars. <laughs> Can you blame them? Quote, small dollar giving at the federal level totaled $312 million in the first half of 2023, a drop-off of more than $30 million compared to this point in the 2020 cycle. Democratic fundraiser Act Blue also had 32% fewer donors in the second quarter of this year compared to four years prior, although its total fundraising, including state and local campaigns, increased slightly due to more recurring donors. As Daniel Plainview points out, $30 million is a good, healthy drop-off. It's not a good sign. Interest in Joe Biden is flagging. He's a confused, doddering, incapable old man. Fewer people want to plunk down a bunch of money for that candidate. Democratic consultant Ari Rabinhaft says there has to be a, quote, quick examination among Democrats about what is creating this enthusiasm gap, end quote. It's not hard. The party picked a 450-year-old man to be its standard bearer. There's nothing inherently wrong with being 450 years old, of course. But it does tend to take the starch out of the difficult, highly competitive process of presidential politics. We can probably expect this problem for Democrats only to increase as the campaign goes on and Joe gets more and more tired. Trump, meanwhile, thrives on this sort of thing as Election Day 2024 gets nearer. He'll doubtlessly just get more and more amped up. That sort of thing usually translates into more money. There's still a long way to go before next November. Buckle up. End quote. Full stop. That's the end of the post. Now, let me <clears throat> present to you a counter narrative. One, technically, and I know you're not being strictly speaking serious here, but then that's the problem. Joe Biden is not 450 years old, and Trump is not the best we can do. He's not. Now, if he gets the nomination, that's one thing, but He's not the best we can do. What's interesting, if you consider it about Joshua, is that God himself intervenes to exalt Joshua in the eyes of the Israelites. Why do I bring that up? Well, for one, because he's clearly someone they're familiar with. He's been Moses' right-hand man. He's been there. He's been someone people are cognizant of. He was one of the 12 spies who were initially sent in to spy out the land. Some bitter people 
might have said, oh, that guy, he's half the reason why we were punished with 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. But no, no, no. Joshua was one of the two who got it right. He wasn't the only one, but he was one of only two who got it right in his generation, Caleb being the other one. And oh, by the way, Caleb literally means dog. (laughs) So Joshua and a guy whose name means dog, right? So think dog the bounty hunter, maybe, possibly. Joshua got it right. Ten others got it wrong, which is to say you can't always trust the polling. And oh, by the way, we shouldn't rule out the possibility that God himself makes it clear what our outcome is going to be here. And it may not be blessings and protection and turn this all around. It may be ruination. It may be 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. It may mean pain and discipline and God making an example of our country for the world to see. That's a sad thought. That's a sad, sad thought. But it may be that. On the other hand, I wouldn't be so fast. I wouldn't be so quick to assume that just because Trump was the guy for a time, he is therefore the guy, the best option moving forward. Again, think back to Moses. Not that Trump was any Moses, but think back to Moses and how Moses at a certain point disobeyed God. He was commanded to speak to the rock and water was going to come out of it. And what did Moses and Aaron do after the death of their sister Miriam, which is an explanation. It's not an excuse, but it's an explanation for maybe part of why they forgot themselves in front of the whole nation of Israel. At Meribah, they struck the rock. Aaron was defrocked. Moses was prohibited from entering the promised land. He was allowed to see it, but he wasn't allowed to enter it because he dishonored God in front of all Israel. He disobeyed God in front of all Israel. He was the one leading, and then he wasn't. Far be it from us as conservatives or even just people who are totally opposed to the godlessness, the Satanism, the transgressivism of the radical left, Far be it from us to suppose something like the divine right of kings with regards to Donald Trump. Just like God made Saul king over Israel for a time, and the people of Israel made Saul king over Israel for a time, at a certain point, God removed the kingdom from Saul and made David king after Saul. And actually, I think some of the attacks of Donald Trump against Ron DeSantis are reminiscent of the kind of jealousy, envy, resentment that Saul showed towards David when it was clear that God was taking the kingdom away from Saul and that David was the anointed to be king next over Israel. I would hope we would have the wisdom to recognize that Donald Trump may have accomplished some good things. It may have been. Sure, yes, an answer to prayer. That Trump was president for four years. But how did God remove Saul from over Israel? Was it through David? No. Did God act directly like in the case of Herod? No. God gave Saul into the hands of the enemies of Israel, and he was cut down. I think we should leave open the possibility that that is very similar, at least, to how God would operate 
in the affairs of our country today. We are not Israel. Trump is not Saul. Ron DeSantis is not David. But there are types of men and there are types of situations and types of scenarios which we would do well to note. Otherwise, what is the point of studying history after all? What is the point of studying the Word of God after all? If there are not types of people, if we are not going to be made wise and get knowledge and get instruction, get understanding, get wisdom by studying his word. Also, oh, by the way, we may not be Israel. Trump may not be Saul. DeSantis may not be David. But God is God. That's one of the things that just doesn't get nearly enough press. It doesn't get nearly enough attention. That God is still God. So in conclusion, I would just remind you all and remind myself that God is going to be justified. He is going to be vindicated. He is going to be shown true. He will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. So does a nation. So does a people. We want to reap blessings. We want to reap good things because we have sown good things because we have sown religion that God finds pure and acceptable, which is this, to visit orphans and widows in their need and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, to provide things honest in the sight of all men, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to not show partiality towards anyone is part of doing justice. But that isn't to say that it's easy It's only to say it's good. And you know what? In the grand scheme of things, that makes it easier. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.